Well, in all the excitement of our graduates and recognizing them, we forgot to invite our ushers to come forward. And so you will see that they have done the very good thing of just doing it on their own. Thank you, guys. <laughs> we do thank you for giving to support the ministry of this church. And if you want to, you can give online at efree.org give if you'd rather do it through some electronic means. So there are a lot of parents in this room right now. We saw that earlier. How many parents? Just raise your hand. I won't make you stand up, but if you're a parent, raise your hand right now. Okay. Everybody that's a parent, very good, very good. Have you ever done that thing where you tell one of your children to not do something, and you walk out of the room, and you turn back and you look, and they, are, they have already started to do the very thing you told them not to do? How many of you have had that experience? Okay. How many of you have had that experience more than once with the same child? Yeah. That happens, like again and again. How many more than once, the same child on the same day? Anybody? Yeah, yeah. More hands that time somehow? So we have this thing where our kids will disobey us in some way. They'll do what we tell them not to do, or they won't do what we tell them to do. We walk into the room, we come back, we find out that they're disobeying us already, and it happens over and over and over again, and it becomes part of a learning process. But as a part of that, we can get very frustrated, right? We can get very upset with them to the point where we're ready to pull out our hair because what is it going to take to finally make this kid just listen and obey? Just listen and obey. This is the setting for Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah had come in and brought in all these kind of reforms and restored Jerusalem and built the walls and led the people back into the worship of God and, and had them commit to worshiping him and providing for the temple and everything. And he is going to take off for a little bit, go back to uh, the, the government that he came from, come back to be with them again. And when he does this, he finds out that they have already gone astray from all the stuff he led them to do. And he gets very frustrated by it. We'll see, he gets very, very frustrated by it. There's a cycle, if you've studied the Old Testament scriptures at all, you know there's a cycle to the people of Israel where they will go through a period of obedience to God, and there'll be some kind of disobedience or rebellion, and then there'll be a judgment or discipline by God, and then there'll be a restoration that happens after that, and the cycle starts over again. It's just rinse and repeat. It's like obedience, disobedience, judgment, restoration. Obedience, disobedience, judgment, and restoration. And they go through this cycle again and again. If you really want to see that in the book of Judges, you'll see that I think it's seven times repeated over and over and over again. This cycle of obedience and disobedience, discipline, and restoration. Now that cycle may remind you of another group of people. Specifically, I'm thinking of us. We go through this cycle of obedience to God for a while and then disobedience as old patterns or sinful habits or maybe even things that aren't inherently sinful but they become an obsession for us, a bad habit, an addiction even for us. And, and then we go through a time where the Holy Spirit will convict us in that. And hopefully right then and there we recognize it and we repent of it and we short circuit the cycle back to obedience. But if we don't, God says he disciplines his children whom he loves. And so he disciplines us. He, he lets us know that he is not happy with what we are doing. We face consequences that make it clear we need to change our ways. And then there is restoration and obedience again. And sometimes that cycle continues. This is what we're going to see as we wrap up the book of Nehemiah today. This is our last message in Nehemiah. It's chapter 13. We're going to see this cycle play out again, all in the same chapter. 
where Nehemiah comes back and finds that they're not doing what he led them to do. But here's what I think is so important about what we're going to cover in this chapter today. It's not just what they did, although that will be informative and instructive for us, but it's why they did it. What was it that was causing them or instigating them to abandon following after God and obeying him? and to do all sorts of different things that they were not supposed to do or not do the things they were supposed to do. There is a common thread that runs throughout this chapter, and we're going to look at that today. So before we do that, I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads with me. We're going to pray. We're going to ask God to teach us through his word this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather here and worship you to celebrate some milestones in different people's lives, both the dedication of a new baby to you as well as the graduation of all those seniors and get to honor uh, what you are doing in their lives. And, and we also want to hear from you today, Lord. We want you to teach us through your word as we, as we talk through this chapter 13 of Nehemiah. I pray that you would open our hearts to hear what you want to communicate to us and, and you let your Holy Spirit do his work to teach us individually what you would have us to know as we are here to worship you together. And in Jesus' name, I pray, amen. Let me give you a a recap of Nehemiah, just so you know where we're at right now. Nehemiah, you'll remember, was serving the king of Persia, and he got message from his brother that the city of Jerusalem was in ruin. The walls were torn down. The place was mostly abandoned. This concerned him deeply. Remember one of the first leadership principles we talked about was leaders need to allow themselves to be deeply moved by problems that affect other people. And Nehemiah did that. He allowed himself to be moved by it. And he prayed about this for months. And he went before the king and he said, hey, can I go back and help restore this city? It was God's holy city. This was the place where God would connect with people, where people were supposed to be able to come and worship him together. And it was just torn down and in ruin. And to his surprise, the king said, okay, how long will you be gone? When will you come back? Here's a bunch of resources. And with the king's blessing, Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem. And he started to lead through a series of reforms to bring the people back to God. They read God's word. And they had a feast to celebrate it. And they rejoiced in the reading and learning of God's word. And they built these walls And they had this huge dedication ceremony where they walked around the walls and they ended up at the temple and they were praising God and thanking him for everything that he had done. And they committed to continue in what they were doing, to follow after God. They committed to provide for the ongoing worship at the temple, that they would continue to bring resources so the people who were the spiritual leaders at the temple could could continue their worship of God there and taking care of the temple and making it a place where people could come and worship God together. Nehemiah governed the region of Judah around Jerusalem for 12 years. And then he went back. And when he went back, he he stayed for a short while before coming back to Jerusalem and finding out that everything he had led the people to do was falling apart. And that's what we're going to talk about today in chapter 13 of Nehemiah. If you want to turn there. You can do so in your Bible, or you can use the YouVersion Bible app. Go to events in First Free Church, or go to efree.org slash Bible, and you'll find it there. We're going to walk through this chapter together and see what we can learn from Nehemiah. Starting in verse 1. On that same day, now pause there for a minute. I know we didn't make it very far. We're not going to do this the whole way. 
But if you are a careful student of the word, you may be thinking, wait a minute, on the same day as chapters 11 and 12? No, that's not what this means. This literally means on that day or on a certain day. We don't know exactly when this was, but we know from later in the chapter that there is a gap between chapter 12 and chapter 13. So this is not the same day as those other things that happened. Otherwise, that will confuse you. So on that day or on that same day, as the book of Moses was being read to the people... So what's the book of Moses? Well, the book of Moses is the Torah, the first five books of what we call the Old Testament, of the Hebrew scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those first five books. And the people find a passage that they're reading in Deuteronomy. Here's what they find. The passage was found that said, no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be permitted to enter the assembly of God. Uh, Then in verse 2, Here's the explanation. For they had not provided the Israelites with food and water in the wilderness. Instead, they hired Balaam to curse them, though our God turned the curse into a blessing. So these people, the Ammonites and the Moabites, had actively worked against God and against God's people, even hiring this guy Balaam, who they thought was a prophet, to come and get God to curse his own people. And God turned that curse into a blessing for the Israelites, but a curse for the Ammonites and the Moabites because they were no longer allowed to enter the temple. And then in verse 3, we read, when this passage of the law was read, all those of foreign descent were immediately excluded from the assembly. Now, before I say anything else, I need to address this whole foreign descent thing. Because on the surface, it kind of looks a little racist, doesn't it? I mean, let's be honest here. And this is something that the God of the Old Testament has been accused of many times, that there's a lot of race-based segregation happening in the Old Testament. What's the deal with that? How do we answer that? Was God actually encouraging kind of racist behavior or not? Well, what we have to understand here is that to be Moabite or Ammonite meant to be of the Moabite or Ammonite religion as well. It was a package deal. These were wicked and perverse cultures. These were religions that included horrible sexual sins, but but also human sacrifices. In fact, child human sacrifices were a major part of these religions. In fact, if you go back to Leviticus, I think it's chapter 18, God lays out a list of the reasons why he is, what, what he doesn't want the Israelites to do when they move into the land of Israel. And the people that they're going to displace, God says, you got to understand, these people are horrible. They are wicked. Their whole culture is just wickedness. They practice all these sexual sins. And as you go down this list, it's like super obvious stuff. If you go back and read Leviticus 18, you're going to see all this stuff like, why would you even have to tell people that? Duh. No, of course you shouldn't do that. That's a terrible idea. But... This is the kind of stuff this culture was into, including sacrificing their own children. So at one point in Leviticus 18, God says, hey, by the way, when you go into this land, because there's going to be some interaction with these people, just make sure you don't offer your children as sacrifices. Like, why would you even have to say that? And yet that's exactly what the concern was because the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites and the Canaanites and other religions there had these false gods that they were following after and they were engaging in some horrific stuff. Just terrible. But it was a part of their religion. It was part of their culture. 
And so to be Moabite or to be Ammonite was to be a part of this horrible, horrible false God worship. God wanted the people of Israel to be pure, but not racially pure, spiritually pure. That was the point. This is not about race. This is about religion. The law of Moses allowed for Moabites and Ammonites to leave their wicked culture and religion and join the people of Israel. In fact, this is exactly what happens in the book of Ruth. You see Ruth, a Moabite woman who leaves Moab to go with her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Israel. And what does she say? Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And she goes back and the elders in Israel welcomed her and encouraged her and blessed her. And she married a great Jewish man named Boaz and had a wonderful life there. So this is not at all about keeping people of Moabite heritage away from Judaism. This is about people who are actively practicing wicked behaviors. In fact, we'll see a little later in the chapter, the reason these people were likely even in the temple was not to worship God. It was to conduct business there. They had converted, most likely, just as happened a few hundred years later in Jesus' day, they had converted the temple courtyard into a, into a marketplace. And they were even used the temple storerooms as warehouses for their businesses. So that's the problem here. Cultural problem number one. I'm going to give you five of these. Five cultural problems and five principles that come out of this. So cultural problem number one is they allowed pagans to influence their lives and their worship of God. They allowed pagans to come influence their lives and even distract them from the worship of God. There was probably no actual worship of God happening there. They had converted all of this into marketplace and that allowed pagan people to come into this place. So the people, upon reading this section of the law, realized if we're going to turn this back into a place of worship, we've got to kick them out. Principle number one is that God's people should be set apart from evil. God's people should be set apart from evil. It was true for the Israelites, and it's true for us today. Peter says this, but you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. Royal priests, a holy nation, God's own, very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, but now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you, as temporary residents and foreigners, so now we are the foreigners, as foreigners to keep away from what? Worldly desires. To keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. And this is very important. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. See, we are called to be in this world, but not of this world. We are called by God to be separate, but not separate from the people of the world. We're supposed to engage with them. We're supposed to talk with them. We're supposed to reach out to them, but we are not supposed to allow the worldly desires that they may be into to infiltrate our lives. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? It's a very hard thing in our culture to do, but it was just as hard for the Israelites. All around them, wicked culture that they had allowed to infiltrate deeper and deeper and deeper into what they were doing. If you were to try to put a parallel to it today, it's as if we had decided that instead of having a church service here today, and instead of worshiping God with our singing and our giving and reading the word together and praying for one another, instead of that, we just decided we were going to have a flea market in this room. 
And so we just kind of set up a flea market, and then we invited a whole bunch of people from different religions, different faiths that don't believe anything we do to come and just sell stuff here. And, and that would be very inappropriate. But this isn't the temple of the Old Testament. This, that was a special place that God had given specific commands about it. It'd be bad enough if we did that, but for them to do this, this was horrible. They had invited these worldly desires, these worldly practices into their temple, and they were not living properly. We are to be living among our unbelieving neighbors, but not taking part in their behavior. So principle number one is that God's people should be set apart from evil. Read on in verse 4. Before this happened, Eliashib, the priest, who had been appointed as supervisor of the storerooms of the temple of our God, and who was also a relative of Tobiah. And Tobiah, remember, is the Ammonite who opposed Nehemiah early on. He did not want Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. This is an enemy of God. He had converted a large storage room and placed it at Tobiah's disposal. This is a storage room in the temple, a large one. Valuable real estate right in the, in the heart of Jerusalem here right where all this marketing stuff is going all around in the marketplace, there are these warehouses that are designed to hold temple things, temple purposes, temple resources. And what did they do? The room had previously been used for storing the grain offerings, the frankincense, various articles for the temple, and the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil, which were prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, as well as the offerings for the priests. I was not in Jerusalem at that time. Now, I just love this because Nehemiah is basically trying to make sure we know he's off the hook here, right? He's like, by the way, all this stuff happened. They allowed these people in. They kind of used the temple for purposes it wasn't designed for. They allowed Tobiah to take over this large storage room, this valuable uh, real estate as a warehouse for his stuff. They threw out all the temple stuff. We find out later in the chapter, it's not just that one room, but it's multiple temple storage rooms that were used for this purpose. And Nehemiah's like, hey guys, just to be clear, I wasn't there. Now, as a Western thinker, as a very logical order kind of person, I want that information at the beginning of the chapter. I want to know right up front, by the way, Nehemiah was gone, and then all this stuff happened. That's not the way it works in a lot of ancient literature. You will find that you start to read something, and then halfway through, you get context that helps explain what you just read. And you realize, oh, okay, that's how that happened. How did this happen under Nehemiah's watch? He was gone at the time. I was not in Jerusalem at that time. And we do this in movies and books today. It's a plot twist, you know, but mostly for fiction. We like our history to be in order. This is not quite an order. So he's saying, hey, by the way, I was not in Jerusalem at that time. For I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign, though I later asked for his permission to return. When I arrived back in Jerusalem, I learned about Eliashib's evil deed in providing Tobiah with a room in the courtyards of the temple of God. I became very upset and threw all of Tobiah's belongings out of the room. Then I demanded that the rooms be purified. Rooms here, so we know there were multiple rooms used for this. Then I demanded that the rooms be purified, and I brought back the articles for God's temple, the grain offerings and the frankincense. So that means that somewhere this stuff had just been dumped. This stuff was taken out of the temple storerooms, and I don't know where they put it, but they just, they just dumped it somewhere and filled it with whatever Tobiah was using to sell and, and make money while he was there. And Eliashib was probably getting a commission off of that. So cultural problem number two is they allowed spaces set apart for God to be infiltrated by evil people. 
They allowed spaces in the temple set apart for God to be infiltrated by, by evil people and evil practices in this case. Now, we don't have a temple today, do we? Or do we? Do we have a temple today? Yeah, we sure do. Where's the temple today? It's us. It's those of us who follow Jesus. Today, we are that temple. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. He says, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you. God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So do we ever allow the spaces in our temple to be infiltrated by evil people or evil things. Let me put it a different way. What have you allowed to take up residence in your life that doesn't belong there? More godly things should be in there. You have storerooms in your temple, in your life, in your mind, with your affections, with what you use your resources on. There's a room in your temple for spending time with God and reading his word. What's in that room most of the time? There's a room in your temple for prayer. Is there something else that takes that room over most of your days? There's a room in your temple for being generous to others and giving. And what is in the room of that temple? Is it stories of how you've provided for other people? Or is it all the stuff that you've amassed instead? There's probably a room in your temple for community with other believers. We're supposed to be involved with each other, bearing each other's burdens and encouraging each other and helping each other to grow and leading each other and using our gifts to support each other. There's a room in our temple for community. That's why we have groups here. We think it's so important that we be connected with each other. And don't get me wrong, this is great. Don't stop this, okay? Seriously. Don't stop this. But there's not an awful lot of deep relational community happening right now among you, is there? I mean, just look to your left, look to your right, go ahead, look around. You're not deepening in relationship with those people right now a whole ton, are you? Probably not. And I get it, that's my fault. I'm up here talking to you, and you're not able to engage with each other. What we do here is important. We have times of worshiping together, worshiping our God together. We have times of reading his word and learning about it. And all of that's important. All of that is biblical. But there's stuff that doesn't happen here, like getting transparent with each other about what's going on in our lives, holding each other accountable, getting deep into relationships that help draw us closer to God, to help call us out when we need it, to help us when we have a need or when we're struggling with something spiritually, to bear each other's burdens, to pray for each other. And that needs to happen in circles, not rows. We need the rows, but we also need the circles. If you're not part of some kind of a group, a small group, a mid-sized group, a group that's a part of this church, could even be a group that's not part of this church for some people. But if you're not part of a community of believers that's growing deeper, what is filling that room in your temple that you're not engaging in what God wants us to do with other believers? How about a room for sharing your faith with others? Is there a room in your temple for sharing your faith with others that is just filled with fear or filled with all sorts of distractions or other things that you do instead of making sure that you are living out your faith and open about that with other people? Imagine all of those rooms, all of those rooms in your temple all stacked up together and they have a label on them. 
And that label either says worshiping God or worshiping something else. And let's be clear here. Worshiping God can be at work. Worshiping God can be at school. You can study and be worshiping God. You can be working and worshiping God. You can be playing and worshiping God. It's all about the heart, attitude, and motivation that's going into it and being thankful to God for everything that he gives us in the middle of it. But what does our temple look like? Have our storerooms become filled with things that do not honor God? So principle number two is God's temple should be filled with things that honor him. God's temple, which is now us, should be filled with things that honor him. Verse 10, I also discovered that the Levites had not been given their prescribed portions of food. So they and the singers who were to conduct the worship services had all returned to work their fields. I immediately confronted the leaders and demanded, why has the temple of God been neglected? Then I called all the Levites back again and restored them to their proper duties. And once more, all the people of Judah began bringing their tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the temple storerooms. I assigned supervisors for the storerooms, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah one of the Levites, and I appointed Hanan son of Zechar and grandson of Mataniah as their assistant. These men had an excellent reputation. See, these guys are different. These guys are trustworthy. This isn't like Eliashib the priest who gave over the temple storerooms to Tobiah. These guys are trustworthy people, and it was their job to make honest distributions to their fellow Levites. Cultural problem number three was that they collectively gave in to their selfishness and greed. It wasn't like just some of the people stopped giving to support the work at the temple. The Levites and singers and temple people had to go back to their fields. No one was giving to support the work. They culturally, collectively stopped giving to support And so these people had to go back to their fields so they could at least provide food for their families. The principle of God's people supporting God's work and the worship and teaching of God hasn't changed for us today. I'm not going to go into these specifically, but these are verses that all talk from Paul's perspective, from 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and 1 Timothy about the importance of giving and contributing to what God is doing through his church today. So even though we don't have a temple building, a structure, we are the temple, there is still an order that God has established to how he wants his churches to function, and he expects us to give purposefully and regularly and cheerfully to support that work that is going on. It's a, it's a principle that was true for the Israelites with the temple, and it's true for us today with the local church. So principle number three is that God's people should support God's work. And today that means through the church. Now, as we go to the next verse, this is verse 14. As we look at it, you're going to see this is a little bit odd. We're in the middle of a memoir written by Nehemiah about what he did. And every so often here, he's going to throw in one of these little prayers He's just going to kind of throw up to God. Like, here's here's a little prayer. And let me show you what this looks like. He says, remember this good deed... Oh my God, and do not forget all that I have faithfully done for the temple of my God and its services. He does this again in verse 22 and again in verse 31. He says, remember this good deed also, oh my God. Have compassion on me according to your great and unfailing love. Remember this in my favor, oh my God. Now this seems kind of self-serving, doesn't it? 
Like, why is he trying to remind God of the things that he did? And I struggled with this a little bit this week, trying to think through, okay, what what is Nehemiah trying to do? And it doesn't seem there's a ton of consensus out there about what exactly is the purpose of this. So as I was thinking about this, trying to wrestle through it, I, I knew there'd be some people who would read this chapter and go, okay, what is going on with this? I've given it some thought, and here's what I think is happening. You have to remember that this is before Jesus Christ came to die on this earth. This is before the giving of the Holy Spirit as a seal to us. And so for people under the old covenant, what you needed to do to make sure you were right with God was to live a life of faithfulness to him. Now there's a lot of meaning wrapped up into that statement, to live a life of faithfulness to him. Hebrews 11 makes it clear that it was the faith of the Old Testament believers that saved them. But that faith was very intertwined from their perspective with the works that they were doing. And it's really not all that different for us today, because as James tells us, faith without works is dead. It's not that your works save you, but he says, I will show you my faith by what I do. In other words, real faith, real genuine faith will result in actions. It's going to happen. And if there are no actions, then that faith was dead. In other words, there was never any faith there at all. And so from Nehemiah's perspective and others in the Old Testament that we read about, the evidence of their faith to God was their faithfulness to God. The evidence of their faith in God was that they followed God's commands and they were faithful to him. They took action and they took risks and they stood for it. Nehemiah took great risk to do what he did. That risk, another way to think about that, is an evidence of his faith. He had faith that God would work as he did these things. And so he did these things for God. And I think that's why he writes this in here for us to to see. This is what he's pointing to, to say, I am faithful to God. Then in verse 15, he writes, In those days I saw men of Judah treading out their wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys, and bringing their wine, grapes, figs, and all sorts of produce to Jerusalem to sell on the Sabbath. So I rebuked them for selling their produce on that day. Some men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise. They were selling it on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem at that. So I confronted the nobles of Judah. Why are you profaning the Sabbath in this evil way, I asked. Wasn't it just this sort of thing that your ancestors did that caused our God to bring all this trouble upon us and our city? Now you are bringing even more wrath upon Israel by permitting the Sabbath to be desecrated in this way. Then I commanded that the gates of Jerusalem should be shut as darkness fell every Friday evening, not to be opened until the Sabbath ended. I sent some of my own servants to guard the gates so that no merchandise could be brought in on the Sabbath day. The merchants and tradesmen with a variety of wares camped outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I spoke sharply to them and said, what are you doing out here camping around the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. And that was the last time they came on the Sabbath. I have to imagine Nehemiah enjoyed writing those words. Like, yeah, they tried my patience once or twice. That was the last time they came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and to guard the gates in order to preserve the holiness of the Sabbath. Then I uh, remember this good deed also, oh my God. Have compassion on me according to your great and unfailing love. Now, cultural problem number four is that they joined the outsiders in desecrating the Sabbath. We need to talk about the Sabbath a little bit here. So the Sabbath was the seventh day that God had established in his law. The people were supposed to stop their work, stop their busyness, so that they could rest and focus on God. 
and teaching their children to focus on God. So there are certain things they were supposed to do to make sure that they were not working and distracted by all this stuff so they could just focus on that relationship with God. That was the point of all of this. It was a a healthy thing for them to do, and it was almost like a weekly date with God. And what happened was these these people had started to bring in business even on the Sabbath. So it wasn't enough that they were bringing their business into the temple. Even on the Sabbath, the day that was supposed to be reserved for resting and worshiping God, that day you had them conducting business and selling things. And Nehemiah has almost reached a boiling point. Now, a few hundred years later, Jesus would talk about the Sabbath, that day of rest, only point out a different extreme. Because over the next few hundred years, a group of people took the laws about the Sabbath and they added more laws to them. They created extra restrictions that weren't actually in God's word. And they did this to try to make sure that no one would ever get close to breaking the laws that were in God's word. It's called building hedges. So they built hedges around the real line to make sure no one actually crossed the real line. And Jesus would would break some of those man-made laws, but not God's laws about the Sabbath. And when Jesus did that, they condemned him for it, and they rebuked him. And Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What does that mean? God intended the Sabbath to be good for people, not to be some legalistic thing that, that they had to follow every little kind of detail about. But it was supposed to be a helpful, healthy thing for them to do. The Sabbath was made for man and not for the Sabbath. It was a healthy weekly ritual that was supposed to be built into their culture to stop and pause and focus on God. Now today, we are not bound by the laws about the Sabbath. Uh, that That is the only command out of the Ten Commandments that is not repeated in the New Testament for us. In fact, instead, Paul says in Colossians, don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. The Sabbath was a part of the old covenant with Israel. And when Jesus came and died on the cross, he fulfilled that old covenant and he established a new one. However, the principle of regularly stopping what we're doing, pausing our busyness to focus on God, that has not changed. If anything, we have more access to that now than they did back then. Let me show you what I mean. This is from Hebrews chapter 10. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. Let me explain that briefly. There was a curtain in the temple that separated the courtyards from the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could go there in there and only once a year, and that was the, most, that was the closest place you could get to God. When Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was torn into two, signifying the fact that there was no longer that separation between us and God. And so we don't have to go through a priest. We ourselves have access to God through Jesus Christ, who is our high priest. In other words, we can have that connection with God. We can pause what we're doing and have the equivalent of a Sabbath focus on God anytime during the week. And we should, whether it happens on Saturday or Sunday or other parts of the week. That is something we should be doing. We have access now to that thanks to Jesus. Since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God 
with sincere hearts fully trusting him. Don't wait for the Sabbath. You should be doing this all the time. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. And our bodies have been washed with pure water. So that curtain has been torn. We have direct access to God. We can do this anytime, all the time. We can be doing this, going before God right into his presence. But since we have that individual access, the natural question that would come out of that is, does that mean we don't need to get together as a group anymore? Does that mean that this kind of a gathering is now obsolete? We have this direct connection with God. Forget the the gathering of the church. It's not needed. The curtain's been torn. I have direct access to God. What do I need you guys for? Here's what he says. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Okay, well, that requires us to be together if we're going to motivate each other. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Meeting together to encourage one another and to focus on God and to worship God together is not something that has stopped. If anything, it can increase thanks to what Jesus has done for us. So there is no legalistic principle around this. When I was a kid, I often heard the phrase, in the church, every time, what? In the church every time, see, I knew more of you knew it than we're admitting to it. Every time the doors were opened, I tell you what, if you want to do that here, you are welcome to try. There is a lot of stuff that goes on at this church. You will be here nonstop, like seven days a week. There is so much stuff happening here. We don't have any kind of legalistic regulations today about how often we're supposed to be in the church or how often we're supposed to do this. It, it's, it's something that you have to wrestle with that room in your temple and say, is, there, is that, that room in my temple for gathering together with other believers, as, as Hebrews 10 says I'm supposed to do, is that room too often filled with other things? Is that too often filled with my personal desires or my travel or my sports or other things? And again, we're not trying to be legalistic about this here. We're not saying you have to be here every week necessarily. But it's just something to wrestle with and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you in and say, God, how, how, how am I doing in this area? Of this area of my life that's supposed to be dedicated for gathering with your followers. Am I filling that with other things that maybe little by little are taking me away from you and away from the encouragement and the growth that would happen with other believers? So principle number four, God's people should regularly stop their busyness to worship God and grow together. Verse 23 in Nehemiah 13 says, about the same time I realized that some of the men of Judah had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Furthermore, half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or of some other people and could not speak the language of Judah at all. Now, this is not meant to be linguistically exclusive. The idea here is that they are being trained entirely by foreign pagans, not by the people of Jerusalem or people of Israel. And so what, what they're learning is entirely a foreign culture, and that's being exemplified here by the language. In other words, they're not being taught the way of following and worshiping God at all. They're being taught the way of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. So I confronted them and called down curses on them. Here's where it gets interesting. Tell me what you make of this. What do we do with that? 
you have no idea how much time I spent this week <laughs> trying to figure out if that's something we're supposed to follow. <laughs> like we could have a time of confession here. You can come down front for prayer or hair pulling, depending on what you've been up to this week. This really seems like a do as I say, not as I do kind of moment. I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I made them swear in the name of God they would not let their children intermarry with the pagan people of the, of the land. And we'll come back to this if we have time. Wasn't this exactly what led King Solomon into sin? I demanded, see, Solomon intermarried with pagan women, and then he built altars of sacrifice to their false gods that were engaged in these horrible practices. There was no king from any nation who could compare to him, and God loved him and made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by his foreign wives. How could you even think of committing this sinful deed and acting unfaithfully toward God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joida, uh, son of Eliashib, the high priest, had married a daughter of Sanballat, the Horonite, the man who also opposed God and opposed Nehemiah, so I banished him from my presence. Remember them, O my God, for they have defiled the priesthood and the solemn vows of the priests and Levites. So I purged out everything foreign and assigned tasks to the priests and Levites, making certain that each knew his work. And again, it's important to note here, when you see foreign, you need to understand this as pagan. He's using the term foreign to refer to everything that is not of worshiping God. It doesn't mean that God is somehow against these other people. He's made allowances for them to join the worship of him. That's not the issue. It's pagan influence that has come in. I also made sure that the supply of wood for the altar and the first portions of the harvest were brought at the proper times. Remember this in my favor, oh my God. Beating and pulling out people's hair because they have sinned against God is probably not something we should emulate today. And I wrestle with this because I, I want to know from Nehemiah's perspective, like, was that okay? I mean, this was a time when it was more of a theocracy and God is kind of, um, you know, the, the laws that they're following are coming from God directly and yet they're in the civil space and so Nehemiah is punishing them, but shouldn't he just like lock them up? Like, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not entirely sure what to make of the, the beating them and, and pulling their hair. If I had to guess, I would say that at this point in Nehemiah's story, he has just come back, he's opened the door to the room where these kids are, and he just told them not to do this, and now he's found out that, oh, you're doing that? I can't believe you're doing this. I, I just walked away for five minutes. How are you already doing this? And then he looks to another corner of the room, and he finds another thing they're doing wrong. He's like, guys, come on, seriously. I told you no. God told you no. You shouldn't be doing this. And then he walks over to another corner of the room and he sees another thing they're doing is crazy. And then he walks over here and he sees they're doing this and he's like, ah, what am I supposed to do with you people? And he snaps and he loses it. And he starts hitting some of them and grabbing their hair and going, what is wrong with you people? And I don't know, maybe it was justified, maybe it isn't. But the, the thing we can learn from this has to do with a, a really simple phrase that I learned a long time ago that really uh, has informed my Bible study for, for a very long time. How many of you have heard of the phrase descriptive versus prescriptive? Descriptive versus prescriptive. Who's heard of that before? This is an incredibly important concept 
as you study the Bible. Here's why. There's a lot of stuff in God's word that is historically accurate, but not meant to be repeated. It's historically accurate, but not meant to be repeated. David saw a woman bathing on top of her house. He, he had an affair with her. He had her husband put into battle in a place where he knew he would die so that he could cover up for that sin. Historically accurate. Not meant to be repeated, in case you were wondering. There's a prophet named Hosea. How many of you know about God telling Hosea to marry a prostitute who would leave him, and then he had to accept her back again and again as a symbol of God's faithfulness to Israel, even when Israel was again and again unfaithful to him. That cycle we talked about earlier. Historically accurate, but just to clear up any confusion, not to be repeated. There are things in God's word that are descriptively true, but they are not prescriptive for us. It is so important for us to learn to tell the difference. And you do that most often through the context. And most often when you see things in the Old Testament, these are descriptive, these are illustrative, these are helpful, these are informative, but they're usually not prescriptive. Or if there is principle there that we can draw out of them, they're prescriptive in the New Testament. And we can go and see through the work of the apostles and of Jesus that, okay, here is the command or principle for us to follow. In fact, as you look through our study of Nehemiah, this whole study of Nehemiah, there is nothing in the book of Nehemiah that is prescriptive for us. Nothing. There is nothing that you can find in there and see, aha, see, this is why I need to live my life this way. It is describing something that happened. And so we are studying the book of Nehemiah for illustrative purposes. There's a lot we can learn from it. We can learn about how God interacted with Nehemiah. We can learn about Nehemiah's prayer life. We can learn about how Nehemiah led the people. There's maybe some good and some bad there. We can learn about how God interacted with the people and his expectations for them. But nothing in there is directly prescriptive for us. That's why if you've noticed today, as each time we've talked about a cultural problem and a biblical principle, we've always supported that with some New Testament passages that tell us this is prescriptive for us. It's so important that we understand this. And when we come across something like this challenging passage in Nehemiah, that we not try to draw something out of that that is not there and say, well, I guess this is what we're supposed to do now. Countless bad theologies and bad Christian practices have come about because someone read something descriptive in the Old or New Testament and walked away and thought, well, I guess that's what we all ought to be doing now. We have to be so careful to know how to distinguish, how to rightly divide between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. Cultural problem number five. They married people who did not follow God. Moabites, Ammonites, Ashdodites, these were all practicing pagans. This wasn't about race, this was about religion. That's why Nehemiah brings up the example of Solomon who was led astray by pagan wives that he married. This is not about people like Ruth. Who, who converted into Judaism and followed after the true God. That's not what this is about at all. This is about people who are still actively practicing their paganism, building places of sacrifice to false gods, and joining in with the people. And the principle for us today is that God's people should not be bound to those who don't follow him. And just as with the other principles, let me show you where we find this in Paul's writings. He says, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. 
How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? Get this, for we are the temple of the living God. Same rationale, same reasoning, new covenant. We are the temple of God. And so don't partner up, whether it's dating or marrying, with someone who doesn't follow after God like you do. It's only going to lead to problems. And I know there are so many people that say, but this is how I'm going to win them to Christ. Man, that happens so rarely. I'm not saying it never happens, but it's so rare. Far more often, that person ends up leading you away from God. So we've talked about five principles for us. This is a series about leadership. We have to end on a leadership principle. We talked about the nine principles earlier that we've already covered. Let me give you one for today. It has to do with this common thread through all of these points we've been making about the culture. Leaders should obey and worship God, even when doing so is counter-cultural. Cultural changes can be good, like when they stop us from doing things that harm other people, when they treat people as equals instead of lesser, those are good cultural changes. Cultural changes can be neutral. Preferences, decorations, styles. Cultural changes can be a mixed bag. Changes in technology and the way we work that both enable great new things and new resources and less hunger and less poverty, but at the same time could cause addictions and cause people to hurt people. So it's a mixed bag. And cultural changes can be bad when it's something that goes against God's word. The challenge for us in each of our spheres of influence and as leaders is to be leaders who worship and obey God and lead others to worship and obey God even when it is countercultural, even when the culture calls us names because of it, even when the culture says, you can't do that, that's not politically correct. Our first allegiance has to be to the truth of God's word and the principles of God's word, not to whatever the culture wants us to do. And to be clear, sometimes the way of the culture aligns with God's word. And sometimes it's neutral, Sometimes it's a mixed bag. Sometimes we have to stand up and take a risk like Nehemiah did and say no matter what the Moabites are doing and what the Ammonites are doing and what the Ashdodites are doing, we are going to stand for what God has told us to do. Leaders, lead people around you in obeying and worshiping God, even if it's countercultural. We have a, a big announcement to close with today. Um, and so I'm going to pray, but I don't want you to immediately scatter after I do, okay? So please hang with me for one minute. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you for this study in Nehemiah. It's been, it's been so helpful and um, informative for me. I've learned a lot from it, and I've gotten a lot of great application out of it, and I hope that we as a, as a church have too, and that you'll help us to lead in these different ways um, that would cause us to lead others to follow you and to glorify you, God. Thank you so much for what you um, have done through teaching us this series on Nehemiah. And I pray that you'd help us to apply it and help us to live out our lives to glorify you and help us to stand, stand strong, even when the culture doesn't stand with us. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.